ticket. Guys, Simply Earth's Essential Oil Recipes box makes it easy to master essential oils. At over $150 in value, you're going to get four full-size essential oils and all the ingredients you need to make six natural recipes, all for just $39 when you subscribe. Do you want to live a healthier life? Do you want the air in your home, or in my case, our tour bus, to be toxin-free? The answer is yes. Now, this is an amazing company, and here's why. Not just because of 100% pure and natural Simply Earth ingredients delivered straight to your door, but because these are essential oils that change the world, and here's how. 13% of their profits go to help end human trafficking. I'm going to say that again. 13% of their profits go to help end human trafficking. So when you get your essential oils from another company, well, you're going to get essential oils regardless. If you're like the West family, we want to get it from a company that wants to be a part of a cause greater than just profit. And that's what Simply Earth is about. We want to help end human trafficking. I hope you do too. These are the purest oils on earth. Like I said, 100% pure. There are no synthetics, no fillers in these oils. They're tested to be 100% pure with no additives, only the good stuff. These recipes work, too. Every single recipe is created and tested by AHA-certified aromatherapists. You won't get a recipe unless they love it. So here's how it works. You get 100% pure and natural Simply Earth ingredients delivered to your door. You follow the fun recipes in your Simply Earth essential oil recipe box to make products that you know will work because they're created and tested by certified aromatherapists. And you get to enjoy a home free of toxins as we are in the fall spending more time indoors that is more important now than ever so go to simplyearth.com slash west use the code west to get a free $20 gift card with your first recipe box when you subscribe today that's simplyearth.com slash west get a $20 gift card with your first recipe box when you use the code west and subscribe today What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Matthew West Podcast. I'm your host, Matthew West, and as always, I really hope you like it. My voice is a little bit hoarse today, and there's a good reason for that, and I'm going to tell you right now. In fact, as I speak to you, I am looking out the window of the story house to see snow-covered rooftops and icy sidewalks and um, snow on the bushes and the trees. It's beautiful. It's been snowpocalypse here in Nashville, Tennessee, and Tennessee does not handle snow well, all right? Uh, if you go to the grocery store, you'd think it was the beginning of the pandemic all over again. The shelves are bare, my friends. But the reason why my voice is a little bit hoarse is because if you follow me on Instagram, Matthew J. West, or any of the social media channels, you might have seen that the West family, well, we added a new family member around Christmas time, Rocky West, our brand new puppy. We love him. We love having him in the family. But I began to realize just as the snow began falling in Nashville that the responsibility would be falling upon yours truly to be taking the middle of the night shift, potty duty, that is. See what I did there? Potty duty. Making sure that Rocky West goes potty outside and not peeing on our rugs. And so I've spent every single night, at least once in the middle of the night, standing outside in the snow, just praying that this puppy would indeed go potty. And what do you know? One day I wake up with a sore throat. So bear with me. You can blame it on the dog, but let's be honest. Who's going to get mad 
at a sweet little puppy, right? All right, uh, before we get into today's conversation, I just want to wish a special happy birthday. Uh, it is my show, so I can do whatever I want to do, and I want to take a moment just to uh, shower praise upon my daughter, Lulu West. She just celebrated her 16th birthday. She's a remarkable young woman. And Lulu, I know God has great big plans for you. I am so proud of you. And I just wanted to publicly acknowledge just how thankful I am and uh, what a great honor it is to be Lulu West's dad. So happy 16th birthday to Lulu West. Happy birthday. Everybody, wherever you are, even if you're at work, I want you to break out in applause right now for Lulu West. Come on, let's go. I love you, Lulu. You're the best. Uh, One other announcement I would like to make right now. Did you know that our spring tour is about to hit the road February 3rd, to be exact? Before that, of course, I'm going to be at the March for Life in D.C. Then we're going to be at Rock the Universe in Orlando. But go to get your tickets for the brand new tour, MatthewS.com slash tour. Go get your tickets. We want to see you on the road. All right, let's get into today's show. My guest today is a fascinating guy. I've gotten to know him over the years in in different capacities. Most of the time, he's been interviewing me. But uh, this guy is has been working in journalism and media for more than two decades. His writings, interviews, and social commentary have appeared in Desert News, The Blaze, Human Events, uh, Mediate, and FoxNews.com. Among other outlets, he served as faith and culture editor of The Blaze, senior editor of Faithwire, and he's written four books. Uh, This guy has a BA in journalism and broadcasting from the College of Mount St. Vincent in Riverdale, New York, and an MS in social research from Hunter College in Manhattan, New York. He's a fascinating guy, and he's written a very interesting book, but I just love to talk to him about all the things going on in our world today, as well as touch on this really interesting new book he's written called Playing With Fire. All right, let's go to the story house with my friend, Billy Hollowell. So you're in New York, right? Yep, just outside of the city. When you see snow falling in Nashville, like on the news, you're you're probably <laughs> laughing at us. I laugh at you guys, and then I and then I think, do they have salt? <laughs> like that's like always my second thought. I'm like, do are they able to handle this? Like I laugh at you guys, and then I'm like, well, maybe there's a reason to be nervous. Like maybe you're not prepared for it. Well, we're not prepared for the snow, and and that you're exactly right when it comes to the salt. The salt is key. Not just scripturally, but right. <laughs> or is it sand? I, I mean, you know, you shouldn't build your house on sand, but maybe you guys use <laughs> sand instead of salt. I don't know. Well, all I know is they they don't have enough salt. That's what I do know. Now, I grew up in Chicago. You grew up in New York, right? Are you a New York native? I live near New York City now, but I grew up in Rochester, New York. We got like feet of snow. Oh, I mean, it was just like well, Rochester's like crazy. northern. Is that no- upper uh, upstate New York? Is that what you call it? Yeah, like near Canada. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you're basically Canadian, even though there's an American flag behind you. I did not realize I did not realize that Niagara Falls, like when I was a kid, was not I mean, there's an American side, but that it was another country. Oh, really? we would go all the time. It, so it was just like that was your um, amusement park or Disney World. Yeah, like let's go to Niagara Falls today. It was like a forty-five minute drive, so you know, an hour drive. You would go to Niagara Falls, and then you'd you always had to give your birth certificate, which eventually I learned. Oh, we're going into another country. Right, right. Well, you know the uh, the Nashville scene right now is it's weird weather. It's um, you know I was telling you before we started this interview, my daughter's turned sixteen, and uh, we had a big bash for her this past weekend. So, uh, how many kids do you have? I have two. Just like you. Okay, but do you have boys or girls? Two girls. 
Okay, good. All right. I was going to say, if you have boys, I'd have to tell you, keep your boys away from my girls. But <laughs> I mean, 16, first of all, I have, I have a nine-year-old and a six-year-old. And I feel like when I met you, your kids were, were really young. 16 is like getting scary in terms of almost college, now a driving. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, well, she's, she got her license and she's a good driver. I've learned that I'm not, I'm not the guy that's going to be able to stay calm during the teaching, the driver's education <laughs> process. So I'm pressing on the imaginary break on the side. You know, you seem like you're, you have a good temperament though. Like when your kids are at that age, do you think you'll be able to control your emotions or will you like me? You know, like, I, you know, I would just freak out a couple times and, you know, she's like, you're making me nervous. I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. See, but I think you have a good temperament, too. So it, you know, it's funny because I feel like, I don't know, as a parent, there's always like little triggers that get you right. Things that, you know, one thing, for instance, my six year old, it takes her like an hour and a half to eat breakfast and to get ready. Right. And it's like a trigger for me. So while I'm normally calm, it's like, come on, Lily, we got to go. Like we got to. So driving might be, it might be a trigger for me. Although we actually have a place in Pennsylvania where you can drive. And I bring this up because you could drive golf carts around. And when you're 12, oh. you can get a golf cart license. So they may get some practice before the golf cart practice is key. Then it is driving a golf cart is actually harder, I think, than driving a car. So I'm hoping they get a little practice and then I'm less stressed when they do it. It's like, uh, remember that old movie? What about Bob? And <laughs> <laughs> Bill Murray had to take it was like baby steps to the bathroom. <laughs> baby steps. It's like we need to take baby steps. And as parents, we need to take baby steps as well. You know, I will say this having daughters has done wonders for my temperament. I still feel like I can lose my temper. But like when you see it's not even the punishment that would make your little girl cry. It's the thought that it might be coming. <laughs> like so you yes. like before you even step into the correction part, you can see the emotion and you have to just, you know, TLC, right? Tender loving care. You have to because they, it's it's a lot more it's actually been really good, really good for me too. Same thing. You know, just you know, do I still have my triggers? Yeah. But seeing the effect that it has on them, you know, I can be a very much fact-based, like you did, th this was wrong. Like, why did you do this? And you have to do that, but you got to do it with love. And so I've learned, I've learned so much through all of that, but I do have to say, circling back to the golf cart, if you had told me before COVID that I would own a golf cart, <laughs> I would have laughed at you in rural Pennsylvania. I would have laughed that I would have had a house in rural Pennsylvania with a golf cart. What? <laughs> so that was a COVID thing. Oh, it was the craziest COVID purchase, not the golf cart, but the house and all of it. You wait, know, we just, wait, wait. So you were one of many New Yorkers who were like, well, you never lived in the city, right? So I did when I was younger, like in college and then a little bit after. And then I kept creeping further out of the city. Um, and now I'm about 35 minutes out of New York City, which okay. is great. Because most of our encounters have been in New York City. Uh, when I would come to town for a press tour, uh, releasing a, a record or, or a book or something. And uh, this is actually how I was going to start our interview was by quoting uh, Michael Scott from The Office when he was getting revenge on something. He said, my, how the turntables turn. But I was thinking how interesting it is that today I'm getting to talk to you and the shoes on the other foot. Like I'm getting to interview you, talk about your story, talk about your book. But most of our interactions together have come the other way around where you're interviewing me about my music and my story. I've been a guest on uh, one of your many podcasts. But so our interaction together has found 
us in New York together. But now you've, during COVID, you escaped to the hills of Pennsylvania, like Amish country or something? Kind of. You know, it was a really strange thing. Yes. The short answer is yes, but we're still in New York. So my wife is a teacher. She works in New York City. So She, she does. We, she does. Yeah. She's a New York City school teacher. And so that's really, and she's a special ed teacher. She's an angel. She's amazing. But that's what she does. So we're in New York, but we were like, we need a place in the middle. If you remember when COVID started, New York was crazy, right? It was the first place it hit. It was just. Was? You're saying that past tense? Because it still looks. It is crazy still. It's crazy still. But people were like locked in their house, freaked out because nobody knew anything about COVID. And we were like, I don't want to be, we can't be locked down forever. We have two young kids. But by the way, not that we're here to talk about this, but we in our normal, in our townhouse, we have a townhouse here in New York. We had gutted our kitchen the week before COVID. So we had no kitchen. Nobody could come and do the job. No. Yeah. It was crazy. So anyway, we were like, we need to go. So we went and looked for houses that summer in Pennsylvania, just as like a cheap second place to kind of be. And it really became an amazing thing. Our family all came in and it's a place we go and enjoy with my in-laws. And so, but yes, we did escape. We did escape. This is what I was excited about this conversation because every conversation I've had with you, I've just enjoyed it. Like by the time we get to the end of the conversation, you know, I might've been there with some sort of agenda to talk about a record I was releasing, but, and I don't even know if we covered it, but we just, I just enjoyed our conversation. We talk about the world. We talk about things that are going on. So I figured we would go where we would go. We're definitely going to talk about your book. That's fascinating to me before we're done together. But you just opened this up for me. Your wife, a special ed teacher in New York city, you guys are New Yorkers you know, paint a picture of the trials and tribulations of, of a New York family. Obviously you already spelled it out without the kitchen, but specifically even for your wife as a teacher for you with your job, like the state of New York as it was, and even as it is now, what's your take on New York city and what's going to happen? And what's your wife's situation specifically with the teaching front? It's really a rough situation. Yeah. She's a special ed teacher. She works in the South Bronx. So she's dealing with a lot of issues that before COVID were really difficult. Right. And so now you have a situation where, and I think it's hard for people in a lot of other areas of the country who maybe didn't go through that surge, right? Because the panic that it created, a lot of people did in the beginning die because they didn't know how to treat COVID. You know, a lot of people we know lost parents and so it's, it's, it was a different kind of thing. And I think it actually has fueled the reaction to the rest of COVID because it was so traumatic for people in the beginning. So even though things got better and things have changed and yes, it's a difficult situation with COVID still, but you know, we know how to treat it and we have vaccines and all these other things. And of course there are lots of different opinions about those things. But my point is, I think New York was a little paralyzed by that. And there's a lot of interesting politics in New York, right? So it already was a a tough place. And so I just sense a lot of confusion still for my wife in her predicament. I mean, she's had days where, you know, people, and it's funny because the rest of the country, open schools, open schools. And we, okay. well, we've been lucky. Our schools have been open for our kids since last October. That's been amazing. But in the city, a lot of kids don't go. A lot of kids are not showing up to school. So that's a, another barrier, right? Even though schools are open. I mean, yeah. So so your wife's actually going. Are the teachers unions like the ones in Chicago? Are they like that in New York? A little bit, but but I do feel, I will say this. I mean, the schools have been open, ironically, for a really long time. And they were kind of adamant. It started, la- I want to say it was last October or November that they reopened. So yeah, they were closed. They reopened. And they've really... 
for all the other strange politics have gone out of their way, despite the union battles and all that to stay open. Um, and so she has mostly been in person, um, which is kind of remarkable. You wouldn't expect that, right? You would expect that they've, so it's not as bad as Chicago. It seems like they all want to be open. They're debating about how you do that. Right. How do you, and, and COVID's everywhere. Like everyone's got it. So no, everyone and the teachers, I just, my heart goes out to the teachers like your wife, like, a standing ovation for for her and those like her who have continued to serve and try to try to help educate children and imagine i mean we always talk about how resilient we are as people and you know i've seen how resilient my children have been throughout a pandemic but but i mean come on the toll that this has got to that we're going to find out someday the emotional the mental the psychological toll on children who have had to uh, figure out life through a pandemic education right I, I mean I would sound like a fool if I tried to paraphrase some of the statistics that I've read but the predictions of the average child's like education level you know how it's impacting I, I read something about how they're predicting now that the average child like their earning potential is being decreased because of their educational uh, struggles as a result of COVID. You know what I mean? Again, I sound like a complete layman. No, just I'm describing that, but you know what I'm you talking about. You don't though, because but that's how most people understand. It. I mean, I you know this about me. We've talked about. I teach at college. You know, I teach media at different colleges, and you know, I was teaching this past semester for the first time back in person. I didn't have a day in my class. This is a class where you'd have 20, 25 people, twenty two people usually is our cap. And I had no more than six or seven people show up any day during the entire semester. People are not even going to college. Like we talk about the young kids. That's a huge issue, like the mental, the emotional, all that. But like there's a million fewer college students right now in this country than there were before the pandemic. That is a huge. Now, listen, there are other ways. Not everybody needs to go to college. There are plenty of other ways. And I'm. But a big, your point is they're, if they're not going to college, what we also know is they're not going into the workforce. So where, where are they going? Where is everybody? Are they buying Dogecoin and that's it? I don't it? know. I don't know. That's my question. Like, how are you buying milk, which is now $90 a gallon, apparently? Like, how are you buying any food? And how are you surviving, right, in this time? Yeah, you know, that's the other thing about Nashville in the winter. Billy, it's like, it doesn't take a pandemic. It takes not even snow, but the threat... <laughs> The slight possibility of snow, and it looks like Armageddon in the grocery store shelves. Like it's like, yeah, it's scarcity on a lot of levels. But but no, you're right. It's like uh, it's where are they going? I, and when I watch the news now, you part of your business is the news. Yes, yeah, you're a pretty fascinating guy. I I think you and I get along well because I feel like. Um, I'm always doing something. I'm always chasing after something. We're like a lot I, alike. We're a lot alike in that way. Yeah, I think so too. And and you're, I just feel like you're kind of a Renaissance man. You know, like you've got this degree. Oh, in that, I like that. But you you do you have this degree in journal. Now you're currently. I feel like every time I talk to you, you've got a new title. That's what I mean. Yes. Like, uh, yeah. Tell me what exactly right in this moment what your what your official title or day job is. Can you tell me that? Yes. I can. So this is actually exciting. I joined um, CBN News and Faithwire. I rejoined. I used to be at CBN News and Faithwire, but at the end of October, um, as a digital host and as a writer and a reporter, so I'm doing everything from writing um, to hosting uh, video and interviews. And so it's great. And that's that's my day job. I'm also a spokesperson at Pure Flix, um, And so I do an, a lot of interviews for them as well. Uh, but my day job is CBN. 
And I also run alongside the the Christian Post. I run the Edify Podcast Network and the Edify app. So yeah, I mean, I've been really blessed to do a lot of different media things, right? So, but as we keep going, you'll go, oh yeah, and I also do. Be like, but it's like you, what you're basically saying is you have like eight day jobs. There's a lot going on. It's been a bit. Well, so by the way, in wait, what's the Edify Podcast Network? Tell me that. So the Edify Podcast Network, the Edify app is this amazing Christian app. It's got thousands of shows in it, and they're all podcasts, all different kinds of podcasts. Um, you know, everything from parenting down to theology down to I have an interview show there. Um, the Christian Post podcast is on there. And so, yeah, I help direct programming there. And then I host a number of a number of shows, including the Christian Post and PureFlix podcast as well. So and I interrupted you. You were you were about to say something before I asked you that question. This room that I'm in right now, what's so crazy is that 2020 through 2021, it was the busiest period of my entire life that I've ever had. And I was in my home studio and office doing it all. I mean, that was that was the craziest part. Was that good for you? You know, I have to say a lot of people were like, I can't wait to get out. And but it was good for me in a lot of ways because I was here for my family more. You know, that was that was fun. Can I tell you, uh, yesterday I had a meeting with my record label staff for the first time in person in like two years. No joke to talk about new music and things like that. But it was funny. I wonder if you've had experiences like this where, like, we all, they came to my house and my studio, I'm in my studio right now, the story house is behind my house. And they came out front to, and we're all standing out there, but it was like, we didn't know how to greet each other. <laughs> like, like do we hug? because you couldn't, yeah, like you couldn't right. tell is like, do, do you shake hands? Do you do a fist bump? So I think if there were eight people standing there, I had eight different greetings, like one side hug, one fist bump, one That's handshake. So funny. We've Man, forgotten how to like know. interact, right? I mean, yeah, we kind of have. You need to write a book about that. That would be a good book. How do we reconnect? Yeah, how do we reconnect with people? You know, part of your, one of your many day jobs, but all of them sort of still revolve around you being knee deep and finger on the pulse of what's happening in our nation and in our world um, I know that you're you're very um, aware of what's going on politically. Like you seem to, you know, that's your that's part of your job, right? And how do you approach reporting like what's happening in the world when you're with CBN and Faithwire? Like, what do you feel like your job is in that when you're communicating to that audience about the news of the day, especially when everything has a spin, you know? That's such a good question because it's something, to be honest with you, that I've been doing this for a really long time now that I've really grappled with because when I started in media, I was really young. I, I don't know if you know this. I started at 15 years old writing and speaking. I mean, and I'm you know 38 now, so I've been doing this a long time, and it started as a fun project that really turned into some amazing things, but along the way, and then I'll answer your specific question, but you know, it really kind of became about me wanting to kind of be out there doing Fox News hits. And, you know, that over the last three or four years, the conviction of realizing that anything I do needs to be for Jesus. I need to be pointing people toward him. And so I love that question because no matter what it is, I mean, I've been blessed with a lot of amazing media opportunities. There's a lot of things I've said no to now, and it's because I want every story, anything I say, and I love to joke, and people who follow me on Twitter will see some of these things. I might joke about something the president has said, or but but I do want to point people to Jesus. I want to tell stories that matter, and that's another area where you and I really connect, because I know storytelling for you, and to be honest, 
that's what I love about you and, and your story. The first thing I ever, the first time I ever interviewed you, I was working for the Blaze. We were in New York, and I learned about how you were telling stories through music. Do you remember that? Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. And so that was a big inspiration to me too. And a lot of people along the way, sort of watching how people were telling stories. So I want to glorify Jesus, even through the news we tell, right? Like the types of stories. There are tough, dark stories right now. They need to be told. We need to talk about it. But we also need to tell the really amazing stories that nobody is talking about that are happening in the world around us. You've always sought that out with whatever platform the Lord's given you. You've sought to tell stories that don't sugarcoat the truth of what's happening, but also like, you know, the hopeful stories, like you said, that get overlooked by so much of the bad news. How do you feel like we can... I've had moments over the last couple of years where I've dipped my toe in the water of sharing an opinion uh, in, in relation to, you know, whatever's happening. You know, I was outraged by what took place in Afghanistan and, and all of a sudden these new feelings are welling up inside. I think in the last couple of years, a lot of people have probably felt like I've never felt like an activist before. I've never felt like I even wanted to use my platform to, to share an opinion that I'm passionate about other than more lifestyle kind of things, right? Yeah. You know, I, I, I remember I posted one thing. I just posted one sentence, and it happened to be right at the time that, you know, Americans were being left behind, and we were not we were not living up to our promise. And I was just outraged. I was outraged. I mean, how can you not be outraged by the scenes of people falling off the plane and, and all of these things? Of course, news cycles move on. Seems like that was 10 years ago now. But I remember posting just one sentence that I felt like the Lord was showing me was just, Jesus leaves no one behind. Mm. And people jumped all over that, saying, you're getting political, don't do that. And I feel like there's this push. If they don't know you as a political um, personality, they don't want you to be one. But is it possible to be a human being where everybody has a platform, right? And now, I mean, we we all have a platform because we all have a life, but with social media, we all have a voice that can be spread digitally. How do you do that? How do you navigate? I'm asking for a friend. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, where you want to speak truth, but some, like I noticed, you're not afraid to repost, uh, you know, the uh, Washington Post's calling out President Biden for some major lies that he's told, which I'm not even sure if he's aware that he's told them. He just, he seems to be not totally asleep aware. at the wheel. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, not there. Bless his heart, you know. that in, in the South, we would see somebody's cognitive decline and say, oh, bless his heart. But instead, we're saying, Mr. President. Well, we're denying it. And we're also denying that it's happened. I mean, yeah, I mean, that particular story about just making something up, changing the details, these are things that the press would have gone crazy if it when was, Donald Trump yes, did them. Right, right. Right. And listen, I think that we should call out untruth wherever we see it, right? And that's our, I think, our role as Christians. And I'm not saying I do it perfectly all the time. I know I don't. But the reality is there's such a divorce from truth right now. Um, there's kind of two things going on. The divorce from truth, which is impacting everything. And when I say the divorce from truth, like pulling away from faith, right? I mean, that. and then there's the social media chaos. Like what you just described, you post a thought on an issue, right? It's an issue that everybody should care about. Everybody. And it's the truth. And people are like, you're getting political. And I've had this happen to me where the immediate assumption is that I'm this type of Republican person. Like they just start putting you, everybody puts everyone in a box 
because I think social media sort of creates that like, oh, well, they have to be the opposite of me if they've said this thing or they have to be this awful thing. And it's just so toxic. My recommendation has been as long as you're speaking the truth in love, people are going to get upset. I have probably lost, I don't know, 30,000 followers on Twitter in the last year and a half. And, you know, and not because I've done or said anything wrong. If I've spoken the truth, I upset one side, you know? So yeah. Do you want to lose 30,000 followers? No. Do I care? No, because as long as I'm doing, I'm speaking the truth in love, then now when I make a mistake and I'm not loving, I need to own up to that. We all do. Right. Have you had moments like that where you feel like you've like, have you gotten riled up and, and felt like you came on too strong on social media and, and you look back and, you know, you're like, oh, I wish my fingers were slower. I wish I would have. I mean, has that happened before? In the past, a lot. In the last couple of years, no. And here's the sad part. And this is where it's so toxic. I was rewarded for those things. My followers grew. I've had people come to me and say, you know, oh, gosh, I miss when you would just say whatever was on your mind, right? I speak my mind. I tell the truth. But that's not, I mean, like to say whatever you're thinking with no filter, that's how we got in this mess, I think, in a lot of ways. So right? you're saying actually people, some people were drawn to the, you know, the shock of, I mean, I mean, or what we would call clickbait. I mean, right. People, that's very much a line of what people want to be about too. I mean, you making the deliberate choice to pull back from that and focus on truth and love. I think that's good advice for anybody listening to this. You know, it's, it's not about being silent, but it is about checking your motives and making sure that you are speaking the truth in love. I loved what you said, The Divorce from Truth. You need to write that book, too. So you got several books you're going to have to— got a couple books after this interview I'm going to yeah, have to turn You're going to have some new day jobs. <laughs> one day we have to co-write something. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that we should one day do that. Man, I how how would you do that? Like, you take it— we get on uh, Zoom and, and just— Just do it. Yeah? We email it back and forth. Have you done that before? I have, so I actually, one of my best book writing experiences was co-writing a book. I really loved it. So my next book that's coming out, I actually worked with a guy here in Nashville who's a great writer and we collaborated. Um, he, he does that, like, you know, but a lot of times he'll like um, ghostwrite. Yes. Yeah. I'm a writer. I don't, I don't want a ghostwriter. I don't want to just like say, hey, make this up and then put my words or put my name on it. So isn't it crazy that people do that though? I mean, yeah, that's such a thing. It is a thing. And I think a lot of times it's, it's weird because I think it's more like they'll take a, a pastor's like sermon notes or something. So it is, there is a place of origin that comes from a genuine sure, sure. expression of that person. But I mean, you've seen all that, but, but I, I like, let's all that to say is I enjoyed the process of collaborating on a book like I would on a song. So maybe we should do that one of these That'd days. That'd be fun. It'd be really fun. The divorce from truth thing, I think, is so... I just want to like emphasize it because I feel like we know that the world, obviously, is divorced from truth. We're watching it in the headlines every day. There's a crisis of identity. You've talked a lot about identity. You wrote a book on it. And the identity issue has expanded into all sorts of arenas that are creating chaos. And it's that detachment from... God, right? We, when we had God, and, and this country has never been perfect because it's made up of people and we've got history and there's so many things going on that, you know, we have to acknowledge and talk about. But the reality is that our culture is very sick. and It's made this decision. You can almost draw a graph of us moving away. Go back to the year 2000, look at moral issues, what people believed about them and flash forward to today. 
it's so sad to watch. And there's, I mean, look, suicide, drug addiction, every single indicator has gone in the wrong direction. Most indicators as we've made this detachment and yet the world isn't seeing it. And I think the challenge and the last thing I'll say about it, unless you want me to say more, is that even on the Christian side, we have to be really careful not to put other things before truth. A lot of, I listen, for years, politics came first for me. My allegiance to a party came before anything else, right? And I have to admit that. I didn't realize it at the time, but when I reflect on it, I realize, okay, politics is great. Be involved, have opinions, but when we remove that center, we are supposed to have the, the gospel and truth at the center of our lives. If it's to the left or the right of that, or way over, it's going to mess things up. And so I think we have to self-reflect on on our role in that truth issue as well. As followers of Christ, how can we claim to know the truth if we're not spending, if we're not intentional about developing and going deeper in our faith with with Christ? You know what I mean? Like I, I think about it like when I was in high school, if I was given the option of reading the book that I had to make a book report on or reading the Cliff's Notes version of the book, I would take the Cliff's Notes all the time. But but that that approach simply will not cut it when it comes to the journey of our faith. We cannot settle for a surface level of faith in our lives because then if that's the case, if we've stayed on the surface, if we've memorized just enough Bible verses, you know, if we've just checked the boxes but stayed on the surface, then then we will be so much more susceptible to be pushed to the left or the right to lose our grip on what is truth. You got to know what the truth is in order to live by it and then know how to communicate it to the world. And I'm talking to myself because, you know, I think one of the biggest things I've been thinking about as I'm heading into this new year, one of my prayers, and this is what I said to my family, we sat down at the... Um, on New Year's, and I gave them four categories. I said, hey, spend the day thinking about some some goals in these four areas. And it was, you know, family goals, personal growth, spiritual, you know, this, that, and the other. And one of the things that I wrote down, and this really convicted me, is I want to intentionally get better at talking to God than I am at talking about God. That's a powerful word because I often feel the same, that I'm talking about God and I'm not having that communication, that relational communication with him in the way that I should. Yeah, we both have microphones in front of us a lot. We have platforms where where everything turns into something that we're doing to communicate versus just how many moments are we having where we're not worried about uh, reading a scripture that turns into a an idea for your book or an idea for my song or like how many just genuine moments spent in the presence of Jesus where I don't want to be anywhere else. I don't want to strive after anything. I just want to spend time with God and I don't want to be the person who's better at talking about him than I am spending time with him. And that's what just came to mind because it's been front of mind for me. When you talk about this divorce from truth, it's like we have to refuse to let there be a divorce from truth in our personal lives. And in order to do that, we have to be still and know that he is God. We have to guard it like, I mean, with everything we have to say, there has to be a moment in my day where nothing's going to come between me and that time with Jesus. You know, that that convicts me in a good way. You know, <laughs> I mean, that's amazing. And it's interesting, too, because as parents, you know, we started talking about parenthood here. 
And even if you're not a parent and you plan on being one in the future, when you when you look at it, I just wrote a story literally before we got on this on this interview about a new study that came out showing that religious conservatives, right? And of course, that sounds like it's political. It's not. It's people like you and me who take the Bible literally. We believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that they actually, we do a better job of passing faith onto our kids, which is a hugely important thing, right? I mean, like making sure that we raise children who love Jesus and who are going to carry that forward. Um, and, and there were a lot of different reasons for that, but the biggest reason was they called it socialization. The fact that we live it out, it's consistent that you do that daily. And that I think it's so important for our kids to see us having that relationship with the Lord and so that they can then replicate it. We could sit there all day. I write a Bible verse on a whiteboard. This is a new thing I just started doing a couple months ago. And every day at breakfast, and right now the kids have been fighting a lot because they're six and nine, right? And so I'm like, look, you know, let's read a Bible verse about, you know, doing unto others as you want done to yourself. And that's great. But I could do that all day, and that's great, and I need to do it. But what about also them seeing me live that out, right, in a practical way? Did you have somebody living that out for you as a child? I'm curious, like, you know, to hear you, a person who could aspire to lots of different mainstream media things, like you've said, but you've come to this place in your life where you're like, I want the world to know about Jesus and I want to pursue opportunities that allow me to do that. Where does that come from? Where does that begin for you? Uh, was somebody writing scriptures on a whiteboard in your childhood home or, um, or was it a different type of background and you came to your faith later? Yeah, you know, similar to to your story, which, you know, I've had the chance to ask you a lot about. I grew up in a Christian home, but for me, and I don't know how much of this overlaps with, with your experience, it was really a head knowledge. My parents lived it out. We were in church, and this is why consistency is key in action, right? I did see it. I mean, I was at youth group on Fridays. I was at Wednesday night things. I was at Sunday, you know, church. It was a part of my life, but and this is a, a big but, I I think it was in my head, you know, I was really kind of living, and I said I started in, working in media when I was a teenager, literally, so I started doing a lot of these things, and I think I kind of, and a lot of us do this, we start to sort of remake truth around ourselves, you know, like we're the center of it, it's all about me, and God's going to give me whatever I want, and and so it took me a really long time, and it was just a journey, right? I had that great start, and it took me until I got out of college and started getting into my late 20s and then really moving into my 30s for that evolution to kind of move from my head into my heart. But wow. I do think it was because of those early investments that people made in showing it to me, including my parents, that I was able to do that, if that makes sense. And you just answered one of the questions that I ask every guest on the show is, you know, I talk about a blue couch story and the blue couch story is, you know, it represents for me the moment that like my faith became real to me. And for me, it was, you know, watching a Billy Graham crusade on television while sitting on this blue couch that my mom had, you know? And so I, I think about that and it reminds me of a moment where, where it went from my head to my heart. And I love hearing from each guest because everybody's story is different about like that moment where, and it sounds like for you, it was in college where you really began to go, okay, this is, this is something that I, Billy, not just my family. Like I believe this. I want to build my life upon this. And this is now gone from my head to my heart. I love hearing everybody's different versions of that story because it reminds me of the uniqueness of our stories, but the uniqueness of our God and the reality that he pursues us in ways that are just as unique as we are. 
Like that's the beauty to me. Like I don't know. I don't think we think enough about the grandness of God's pursuit of each and every one of us. Isn't that awesome? It's so awesome. And and it happens differently, right? For some people, it's like that one moment, right? Where you right. And I think I had a lot of those moments. It was it was after college. I remember sitting. Oh gosh, I'll probably get you in trouble. But I remember sitting in Glenn Beck's, the room where Glenn Beck was <laughs> um, doing homeschooling stuff for his kids. And I remember the, the editor of The Blaze was interviewing me and I wasn't working there yet. And he was talking to me like, what do you want to do? And, you know, of course I wanted to write about politics and talk about myself. You know, at that point I was still kind of, and he's like, I have this faith editor role and I think it'd be really interesting. And I'm like, I've been a Christian my whole life, but do I want to be a faith editor? Like, what would that mean? And I took that job and I started telling other people's stories. And at first it was still about me, but as I started telling those stories and started finding these amazing transformation stories, I started to realize, oh my goodness, this is, this is a responsibility to tell these stories. And it just, that's what it was that changed, really changed it for me. And I was like, wait, if there, if this was their like transformation, is it in my heart the way it needs to be? Right. And so I rededicated my, my life, you know, at that point and it's been a journey, but I haven't, I haven't looked back. That's powerful, man. I, I love that how you get offered this job that, and it was the first time where like your career aspirations were now converging with, you know, your spiritual journey. That's a, a crazy cool intersection. You know, I got to visit um, Glenn's studios in Dallas and have been on his shows. And he adopted one of my songs, Do Something, uh, for a campaign that he was doing and uh, had some really cool interactions with him. But I love hearing that. So here you are now, Billy, like you're on this path and you're you're all in on it. Like you, you're pursuing it with everything you have, both with your seven day jobs, but then these <laughs> books that you're writing as well. And I got to be honest, when I saw the cover of your book and when I read the title of the book, and then I read the details about the book, I thought I got a great idea. I'm going to have Billy Hollowell on my podcast for a special Halloween episode <laughs> with your latest book because it's called Playing with Fire, a modern investigation into demons, exorcism and ghosts. And yet I was like, I can't wait until Halloween. Like we need to talk about because this book's about more than even just the subtitle. You can only you can't judge a book by its cover is what I would say. But I think it's a fascinating topic. The scripture that came to mind and then I want to set you loose to talk about um, the why of this book book. And I'm curious, you know, you've shared about your journey of faith. I'm curious how your curiosity was stoked to dive into this part of spirituality. But the scripture that came to mind was Ephesians 6, 12. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. And of course, I pulled up the message translation, so it's going to sound like, yo, dude. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but it says, this is no weekend war that we'll walk away from and forget about in a couple of hours. This is for keeps, a life or death fight to the finish against the devil and all his angels. That was the scripture that came to mind as I began reading your book. Let's talk about this latest book you've written, Playing With Fire. Let's talk about the why. What got you interested in diving into this particular topic? That scripture is the center of it all, first Serious. of all. And I yeah. have to tell you, I love that you I love that you brought that up. It's a connection to what we've been talking about this entire time, too. And, and we'll come back to that. Um, you know, the fighting, the chaos, everything that's going on in culture and, and where we are. You know, so I got to be honest with you. I didn't want to write this book when... <laughs> There were a couple of opportunities that came up a few years ago, and I was offered through Regnery Publishing to write this book 
essentially a very similar book. And, you know, I kind of, it was one of those things where I went into the meeting, I was all excited and I did like a two page proposal. It wasn't really much. And they wanted to do it. They offered me a deal and I prayed about it and it just didn't feel right. There was something about it at the time. God was like, this isn't the time. Don't do it. And so I turned down the book offer, which was kind of a weird, crazy thing to do. And I moved forward and I had this great idea for a political book. And I'm like, I'm going to do this political book. And it's going to be, it was called the kingdom crisis. And my agents, like everyone's going to love this book idea. And then nobody wanted the book, right? Like everybody hated the idea. And we were shocked and we're like, oh, that's unfortunate. And then I got a phone call from a publishing house with Thomas Nelson. And they were like, hey, we don't like this book, but we want to do something with you. And we had a phone call, and I know this is a long story, but it's important. No, I, I'm fascinated by this because I think it's important. One, it resonates with me just in terms of rejection, too, <laughs> and how rejection always points us in a direction that, that God had intended all along. So I, I think people need to hear these stories, too. And it was a lot of, it was like 16 rejections. So yeah, it was a lot of rejection <laughs> and which I'm fine with. Right. But you know, you know how it is. It kind of hurts a little bit. You get over it, but I get this phone call and they, and I'm, I wasn't prepared for the phone call. I'd had a busy day and they're like, so what ideas do you have outside of this one? And I mentioned, you know, that I had had this book proposal a few years ago and then I turned it down and I didn't do it. And I still think it's a really important, like spiritual warfare and that whole demonic realm is a really interesting area that a lot of people in the church even though it's a church topic, don't really talk about enough. Anyway, my agent calls me a couple of days later and he's like, you have a book deal. And I'm like, wait, I didn't, I didn't even fill out a, I didn't do anything. They what? literally offered me this deal. And I'm going to tell you, you know, man, I prayed about it for two months. I sat on this book contract and I was like, God, do I want to be the weird book guy? Right. I wrote a book about the end times. Like, and, and when I say that, I love tackling topics that people don't want to talk about. Like that is kind of something and doing it from a journalistic perspective, right? Which is how I did this book. That's a gift to be able I mean, you know, that takes courage and it takes a special gifting to be able to dive into those topics. They're hard topics, right? And so anyway, long story short, I prayed about it and it became very clear, like this is what you're supposed to do. And I did it. And I have to tell you, it was the most rewarding experience. I've never been closer to my faith and, it, and this continues, like waking up every day, reading at least one chapter in the Bible, making sure I'm up on quiet time. And I remember thinking to myself, if I'm going to write this book, I'm going to make sure that I'm, I'm going to be reading every day. I'm going to be in the word. And it just transformed everything. It really did. Why did it strengthen your faith, this topic? And I got to hear like the craziest or the, the crazy, you got to share at least one story in your investigative journalism about this that blew you away. Absolutely. I will. Okay. So this topic of evil, you know, you read Ephesians six, right? Ephesians six talks all about the fact that we're in this battle, that there is this spiritual battle going on. It's not about everyone out in the world. They're fighting each other on Twitter, on Facebook. The Republicans hate the Democrat. Everyone hates each other and there's chaos going on. And the focus, because we've separated from truth is on fighting flesh, right? That's what it's about. But but scripture, like Ephesians 6, might be one of the most important parts of the entire Bible. It tells us there's a bigger battle going on, and I had never thought of that. I read through Ephesians 6 a million times and never once paused to think, wait a minute, am I in the middle of something bigger that, and we should know this as Christians, right? But But it's so easy in the material to escape that. Am I in the middle of a battle, and are there things happening in my life, around me, in my family's life, in our world, that are being impacted by this battle, and I'm not realizing it? 
I mean, that changes everything when you start to... Now, you don't want to find a demon under every rock, but at the same time, (laughs) you want to be able to say, well, wait a minute, what is going on? And so as I started digging into the stories of people who said they were... These are people who believe they were possessed and believe they were healed. But it's not just that. There are plenty... I mean, spiritual warfare is a very broad topic, and it affects everybody's life in different ways. But by looking at those stories and seeing true evil, I I really felt like at the end of writing the book that it pointed me back toward the need for grace and the need for Jesus more than anything else I had actually ever really looked at. Mm. And what about the the power of God did it show you? Like you actually interviewed people who say they've been like the story of the boy who's possessed and uh, Jesus cast the demon into the pigs, right? You know what I mean? Like, is that what you're talking about? Like this kind of stories, modern day stories? Yeah. And they're modern day stories. And the challenge was really for me, we, I wanted this to all be based on scripture. So as I'm working on playing with fire, I go through all of those different biblical accounts. I had never done that. I basically went through all of scripture and looked exclusively at the parts that talked about evil. Who is Satan? He is a liar. He's a, he, he's looking to steal our joy. He's looking to destroy us. I mean, things that we read past, but concentrated, looked at those, looked at those stories, and then started to look at things. Anybody can claim they've gone through some crazy spiritual thing. It doesn't mean they've gone through it. And it's not my job to tell people you have to believe this, but I presented the facts on a number of cases, went through scripture. And what's really remarkable is a lot of these modern day stories and cases There are so many people out there who have experienced things, they're afraid to talk about it. And that became very evident. I had people who I couldn't get to do interviews who had amazing stories because they were afraid of what would happen. Are you going to look crazy? Okay, yeah, being labeled as crazy or, you know, cuckoo or whatever. But you did get enough people that were willing to say, "Here's, here's what happened. And people who were currently going through this darkness or who had been delivered? I mean, did you meet with people in all different stages? So I talked with people who had been healed. I mean, that my focus really, and I, and by the way, I'm a journalist, right? So my, I want to be proven. You have to prove it to me. I want compelling details and information because I'm naturally skeptical of everything, right? Like I, not that I don't believe it. I know it's true, but it doesn't mean that your case is true. So show me. And there are a couple of really fascinating cases one in particular, and by the way, I don't just talk to one person. I want to go, I want to hear from everybody who was involved. Was there a pastor or a priest involved? Was there, you know, and there are different theological views. And so I cover that in the book too. Like what does the Catholic church teach versus what evangelicals teach? And the reason for that was to sort of show how people are confronting these things. But I will tell you, there are a couple of stories that are so compelling and they have documented you know, proof that of these strange things that are going on that I wanted to show that I wanted to bring that to people and let them make a decision for themselves, what they believe. I think it's fascinating. And I think it's something that we, you know, we think about like the political things happening in our world. Sometimes I feel like if the curtain was pulled back and we saw all that was really going on, like our heads would explode. And sometimes I feel that way. And I find comfort in scriptures that remind me that God's ways are higher than my ways because I feel like if we saw everything, like, you know what I mean? If we had some sort of x-ray vision to see the all the spiritual warfare, like, as clear as, you know, seeing you on this screen today, we would... <laughs> I don't know that we'd be able to handle it. It sounds like this book is a great insight 
for a reader to get into that and to be reminded that, hey, there is a battle for your soul, that the enemy, like you said, you quoted John 10, 10, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. There's a whole lot of names given to God in the Bible, and there's a whole lot of names given to Satan in the Bible, and there is not a single good name given to Satan in the Bible. The father of lies, the prince of darkness, right? The accuser of brethren, uh, the thief. Yeah, it's not good. And First of all, let me say this. The point of the book is not to freak people out. It's not to scare people. There are stories. You know, there are a couple- They shouldn't read it with a flashlight underneath their chin. Well, there are a couple of friends that we have who are mutual friends. One's an actress who read it, and she's like, I had to have the light on while I was reading parts of it. So it's funny because it's it's difficult. It's Their stories are hard to read. But the point is to point people, by the end of the book, back to the hope. And what is the hope? Go back to Ephesians 6 be a Christian, live a Christian life. What protects you? What is the shield of faith? It's having faith and living that way. And so we don't need to be afraid as Christians, but we need to understand it. And I will tell you the most shocking thing to me, uh, we did a survey through HarperCollins, parent company of Thomas Nelson, published the book that I could talk about. There were some really interesting results in that survey. One of the things we found when you go out to pastors and you ask them, do you believe, obviously, in the demonic? Yes. Do you believe it has an impact on culture? Yes. You go down the line and then you say, is your church doing enough? And it wasn't just pastors. It was all different church leaders, Sunday school leaders. Is your church doing enough to address it? The vast majority said no. So we we immediately saw that there was this gap in a lot of churches. And here's what's crazy. And you're an entertainer. Like you're in the entertainment industry. You you see this, and we see it in Hollywood. Hollywood talks about the demonic and all of these strange issues. They don't do it biblically, but they talk about it more than some churches do. Uh, more than all churches. You're exactly right. I mean, I was that's what was coming to mind. And you mentioned that in the book, but you talk about, you know, Hollywood, Hollywood's not scared to dive into right. this realm and try to scare everybody with these horror films and and about demonic possession and things like that. And here we are as believers, like one of the foundations of our faith is that understanding that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, that there literally is a spiritual war going on for our souls. And and Hollywood tackles that topic more than than believers do. And I, I think that's a really interesting point. But you you also just laid out the why. Like, that's your why for this book. Like, that's why this book has to be written. And it's a great thing to point people in this direction to say, hey, let's look at this thing that Hollywood glorifies in a distorted and sick and horrifying way. And let's look at it from a biblical perspective. Again, we're refusing to be divorced from truth in all things, we're going to point back to what does the Bible have to say about spiritual warfare? Is it real? Yes. Will it overcome us? No, because the accuser will be overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. Something tells me that you walked away from a book like this and the reader can walk away from a book like this going, you know what? There's a battle, but my God is powerful. And my God is the one who can overcome his light can overcome any darkness. Absolutely. And, you know, I've heard from a lot of people, obviously. And and I think, too, it's one of those topics that people might not want to admit they want to talk about, but they do. Everybody wants to talk about it. This is why Hollywood makes movies about it, right? And huge box office smashes. I mean. Right. And the Conjuring series. I mean, it goes on and on. I actually open part of the book talking about The Exorcist and how that had such a major impact on culture. The fact that this film, when it came out, freaked everybody out. 
Um, and obviously there've been recent headlines about the, the real life boy who inspired that story. He recently died and it's interesting. He doesn't believe, you know, I guess he didn't believe he was, he was possessed and went through these things, but that real life story of what went on with the, the priest who dealt with it is documented in the book because, and the importance of that was this was a movie that really started a lot of that Hollywood sort of trend toward telling these stories. They're not telling them the right way generally. And yet here we are, we have the truth, we have the antidote, and a lot of us are too afraid to talk about it. Again, we don't want to find a demon under every rock, but to ignore that this that this goes on is to ignore scripture. And I think that that was convicting to me. And I've had amazing conversations with people who don't believe, because here's the deal. We talk about divorcing from the truth. As that's happening, there's a crazy surge throughout this country and throughout the world of interest in the Ouija board, interest in spiritual things that are not the right spiritual things. Oh, man. And that's happening because guess what? We have a void in us that we're looking to fill. We're and, looking everywhere else. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and I, oh, man, that reminds me, like in fourth grade, I had this Ouija board experience. Oh, no. At my friend Jay's house. We went to Jay Wellborn's house. I'm, I'm calling him out. No. Um, <laughs> He lived down the street from Willow Creek Elementary where I went to school and we were over at their house and one of the kids pulled out this Ouija board and I'd never seen it before and I didn't know what it was. True story. True story, Billy. You should have interviewed me for your book. But they're, I'm like, what is this? And like, well, it's like, it'll guide you all these letters and it'll send you a message, right? Well, I was like, in my spirit, even as a kid, I was like, this is evil. This feels wrong. Right. You know, that conscience. And I was very skeptical of it. And, uh, I sat there and they said, well, put your hand on it. True story. This is true story. I put my hand on the, 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 I don't know what it is. It's like the mover, the, the thing planchette or planchette. Yeah. And mm -hmm. it started moving to my birth date and then got super hot. And I ran out of that house and ran home and told my parents what had happened. And it was a moment where they were like, son, Satan is real and he has a plan for your life, but God has a better plan for your life. And that's why we stay away from that kind of stuff. But I will never forget. And I know someone's listening to this probably going, whatever, Matthew, that's a weird story. But I, I remember that. In fact, I I'm having, it. I'm recalling that as you're telling that story. That's crazy. I did a whole chapter on the Ouija board because, you know, and a lot of people are like, oh, you know, he's doing a chapter on the Ouija board. Yeah, I did. Because guess what? There's a whole history to it. I mean, back when this country wasn't divorced from truth and the newspapers would talk about these things, if you go back to the 1800s, the Ouija board goes back to like the mid 1800s. It was, it was actually a medium who created this board and they started selling it, you know, um, trying to market it, but you can find all the old newspaper articles about it and true story and not to freak anybody out, but the guy who was selling the Ouija boards who, and I think it was 1929, this happened. He built a factory to make the boards. They were, they were selling everywhere. And he actually fell off the roof of the building and ended up dying. And there's this whole crazy, his obituary was in the New York times and so we kind of tell like the dark history of that. And again, people can make with that what they will, but for a lot of people, the Ouija board and these other tools of trying to communicate, these are a tools that a lot of people use in the satanic realm. They're actual real tools they use. The sad thing is that you go to Barnes and Noble or other stores. Oh, you find it right there. And it's right there with the games. I mean, it's, it's, so yeah, it's crazy. I just keep thinking, I'm like, man, we need Jesus. This world needs Jesus and this world's looking everywhere else but Jesus. And I'm glad that you, I want to encourage you, like, 
keep going and writing books about the topics that nobody else is discovering or touching, right? Like, I love that. I love that you and your publisher did the research too. And, and you, you checked in with pastors and you know what I mean? You're creating the why for what you do. And you clearly have carved out a lane and you're stoking people's curiosity, but you're doing it from a biblical perspective. You're staying steeped in truth. So people can read about this and should read about this to grow deeper in your faith, to go deeper in, in wider in your awareness of who's at work and who's trying to win the battle. And then the ultimate reminder that your book provides is we know who's in control. And we know who God is, we know he is who he says he is, and we know that he can deliver us from evil, right? And I, th I keep thinking about the scripture, my people who are called by my name, right? God promises that if we humble ourselves and ask for forgiveness, that he will heal our land. So praying that our world will turn to Jesus once again. And uh, so people need to go check out, go check out Playing With Fire, the latest book by Billy Hollowell, the latest of many to come. I think we've covered several titles that you're going to get to work on right after this interview is over, correct? <laughs> we have. You've planned out my next three years, so I appreciate it. Yeah, just go hop on that golf cart in the hills of Pennsylvania. <laughs> let the ideas start rolling. It's a six-person golf cart. It's, a, it's bizarre. It's a giant golf cart on top of it all, so it's ridiculous. Now you're just showing off. No, can't it's, hide, it's you absurd. can't hide money. It's a, it looks ridiculous. <laughs> it looks, anyway. I love it. I love it. Billy, um, this has been, I, I knew we'd have a great conversation. I feel like we've covered just about everything. Uh, and uh, I'm excited about this book for people to go check it out. We're going to post a link at the official podcast page. Where else can people find you uh, before we sign off today? Yeah, head over to billyhollowell.com. And also, I've got a blog. You can sign up there. I've got a, a newsletter that goes out every week. And then also CBN News and Faithwire. Check it out. Yeah, and uh, you know, I'm sure at one of these days I'll be back on talking with you on one of those networks. Uh, In fact, I think we have an interview scheduled like next week. So yeah, you will be. Oh, serious? <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be the Billy and Matthew show. Here we go. There we go. Hey, love to have you come back again anytime and uh, chat about, I mean, whether it's a new book or just any new articles you're working on, it's just uh, always something interesting um, and I love it. So super inspiring stuff today. Thanks, Billy. Thanks for having me. Okay, my friends, now it's time for Songs from the Story House. Today's song from the Story House is a special one for me in honor of a special girl who just celebrated a very special 16th birthday. I wrote this song in the days leading up to the arrival of our firstborn daughter, Lulu West. This is a little lullaby. It's off of the album, Something to Say, but most importantly, it's straight from the heart of a dad who couldn't wait to meet his little girl and still can't believe that he gets the honor of walking through life with Lulu West. So here's a little bit of safe and sound. I'm, I'm just going to play a little clip of it, but you can hear the whole song wherever you stream and listen to music. This is Safe and Sound for Lulu. Can't believe you're here now Tiny dream come true The answer to a prayer now I'm so in love with you Couldn't wait to meet you Hope you like your name I get the funny feeling Life will never be the same Safe and sound You're here with me now Like I hold you Sound, you're here with me now, and that's all I'll ever need. 
He's my dad, and he gives good advice, and that's why today's last segment of the show is called Dad Advice. He is my dad, and he gives good advice, and that's why this segment is called Dad Advice. Dad, thanks, as always, for joining me. We've been kind of digging in through our Pop Wee Day One Devos, uh, through this segment every week on the podcast. We're diving into that phrase, first things first. Here we are in a brand new year. You know, we're we're believing that uh, this year is going to be better than the last, both in our in the state of our world, the state of our nation, the health, the all the things. Right. We're believing that God is doing a new thing. And so I've, I've loved personally kind of digging into this theme of making sure that I'm taking care of first things first and getting my priorities in check, which, of course, means God above all else and my relationship with him being the the focus, the priority. And so uh, you always do a great job of pointing us towards that in every episode and leaving us with that encouragement to put God first. What are we going to talk about today? We're going to talk about casting an anchor or the anchor of grace. And there's two key verses, Hebrews 6.19. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure, secure meaning steadfast. Acts 27, 29, fearing that we might run aground somewhere on the rocks, they cast four anchors from the stern and wished for daybreak. Now, I think we all agree we're all living in stormy times, and we look back, it's almost two years that we've been in this pandemic, and among the not just the pandemic, but tornadoes, hurricanes, yeah. anxieties, and fears. Uh, we would have to describe it as, as stormy times. The question is, what do we do when we find ourselves tossed at sea? One thing is we have to make sure we have an anchor and that we have the right anchor. Sometimes people are depending on different anchors that's not going to not going to keep them in the midst of real life storms. So they have to have the right anchor. And our anchor is Jesus Christ and his grace. There's an old hymn entitled In Times Like These. George Beverly Shea sang this song at the Billy Graham Crusades. It says, in times like these, you need a savior. In times like these, you need an anchor. Be very sure, be very sure your anchor holds and grips the solid rock. This rock is Jesus. Yes, he's the one. So when we feel tossed in the storms of life, Remember, you need to cast our anchor, and that anchor is Jesus. We reach out to him and trust him and his gift of grace. He is our rock, and we can withstand the storm. Our anchor holds. And Matthew, one quick illustration. Uh, we just finished a great pop. We did a great giving campaign on We Need Christmas, and we blessed five families that we thought were going through some unbelievable trials. And you might be re remember the, I know you remember all of the five calls and the Zoom, but one family in particular, John and Tara, and seven awesome children from Wisconsin, we met them at Life Fest, and they just uh, were loved Jesus and loved your music. And then in October, they were out of town and their house burned down. They lost everything. And including their vehicles, we just spoke to them on December 17th. And what were they doing? They were praising God for all that he had done and what he had supplied in the midst 
of losing everything, they had the right anchor. That anchor was Jesus Christ. And I was so moved to trust God even more and more and to cast my anchor in these stormy, stormy times. I Googled quotes with the word anchor in it. Sometimes I'll do that. And the first thing that popped up, it completely sums up the message of our world. And it said, be your own anchor. There you go. Right? I mean, if that's not not a, a... uh, you know, a false statement. I, I don't know. Anytime you're going to try to make yourself an anchor, you know, oh, you're going to drag yourself down and the wrong kind of anchor will, will make the boat sink. Won't it? Oh yeah. You know, yeah. And, uh, but you're right. And I love that, that example of that family, these people who had um, weathered tremendous storms and, you know, so many people listening to this podcast, you've weathered storms yes, in your life. Every yeah. single one of us will. And we know that because Jesus said in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. And so it's a great reminder as we take care of first things first and we're launching 2022, we want to make sure that we're that we have the right anchor and the anchor that is hope for our souls and helping us not sink, yes, but yes. to survive uh, every storm. So that's a good word, Dad. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, that's our show for today. I want to thank my guest, Billy Hallowell, for joining me. A really fascinating guy, and I love the way his mind works. I I love getting his perspective on all things going on in the world, and uh, I'm sure you enjoyed that conversation as well. Be sure to check out his latest book, Playing With Fire, really interesting stuff. And I'm going to post a link at the official podcast page, which is, of course, MatthewWest.com slash podcast. So thank you, Billy, for joining me. Thanks to my dad, as always, for a great um, message with dad advice and an encouragement for you. Taking care of first things first, putting God first in our lives. I hope this podcast reminds you to do that every single day. And we look forward to not just connecting via this podcast weekly, but soon and very soon. I'm going to say it again. We're heading out on the road, and we don't want you to miss these powerful nights of worship and music. The brand new tour taking off starting February 3rd. Ann Wilson and Hannah Kerr will be joining me. Um, And then later on, Jordan Feliz and Kane. It's going to be an awesome spring. Go to MatthewWest.com to get your tickets. All right, go make the most of it. You get one shot at this life. Remember, it's your story for his glory. Love you guys, and I'll see you next week. Seriously, I, I, I do.